thank you so much, Kendrick, for for taking the time today. I really appreciate it. I uh, have been a big, big fan of Republic for a while now. It's a super intriguing company based on a, a super important topic to me, which is basically expanding the world of investments to, uh, you know, not just accredited investors, letting the the common public, you know, not only in the United States but worldwide, invest in, in interesting assets from startups to crypto. Um, even real estate, et cetera. So, you know, pleasure to have you on today. I think what would be great to get started with is just kind of walking through your background a little bit and telling your story. And then obviously um, we'll spend a good time, a good amount of time on Republic and talking about what you're working on today. Thank you so much, Jake, for having me on, on the podcast today um, and for the generous introduction. Uh, so, you know, as an immigrant from my family, I moved to the U.S. from Vietnam financial access and financial inclusion. I think that just topics on a lot of immigrants' mind because you typically come to the country without a lot of money. Uh, and so uh, investing is like, you know, a couple steps away from like being, you know, settled down and, and, and uh, have some security. So gr growing up in the Bay Area, we weren't accredited investors. We weren't able to invest in like early stage Amazon and, and Google and Facebook. And so like the need or the desire or the interest of seeing all of these headline news about the next trend in finance and prosperity and seeing how they can be relatable to more and more people, particularly non-accredited uh, investors, which is non-millionaires, uh, has always been a very important thing for me. So uh, my, my earlier professional background was in securities law, worked in hedge fund and asset management in New York, which even amplified the, the, the access and inclusion in equity when it comes to, uh, to investment and wealth even more. Uh, and then I moved back to the Bay Area to do academics at Stanford uh, and, uh, and Joy Angelis uh, as their general counsel. So all of that led us to Republic because there was a huge change in the law back in 2016 that for the very first time in 80 years since the Great Depression, you don't have to be a millionaire to invest early. So I basically, that was the moment when I was like, stop whatever I was doing, and this is definitely going to be a lifelong pursuit to make investing, particularly private early stage investing across different verticals, more accessible to accredited and non-accredited uh, investors in the US and beyond. Yeah, it's, it's super interesting. And you mentioned the background in law and then basically how the change in regulation was what led you to realize, you know, drop everything. I got to go start this company. I got to go work on Republic. Um, I'm curious, you know, there's a bunch of people who I admire in the, in the tech and, and startup and investing and entrepreneurial world, uh, who kind of got their start in law quickly realized that there's, you know, nothing against lawyers, but maybe some more exciting stuff for them personally to be done. And, uh, you know, they went and got into the business world. You talk about like Peter Thiel, um, and Keith Raboy over with them at Founders Fund, who, who was previously on the podcast, uh, Naval, who I know you worked with closely, I believe started actually in law as well. Um, what do you think it is about starting in law that, you know, is, is there advantageous, uh, you know, aspects of starting your career that way when it comes to a career in business? Uh, uh, I can only speak for myself because the examples that you gave, that is Peter 
Theo Keith Robois and Navarre, uh, from what I know, they had that legal background, perhaps academically, but never truly practiced law. Uh, and so I couldn't, because the elements of the legal uh, training and the law experience that was very relevant for me when I founded Republic, which is the, the ability to hash and manage risk. Because particularly in financial technology or in financial services, if you're pushing at the frontier, you're navigating in a very highly regulated space. So if you don't have that legal background, you have to rely on outside law firms who by nature gotta give you the more conservative advice to tell you how to innovate. That's hugely inefficient. The ability to make that risk assessment on my own and then console outside attorneys oftentimes disagreeing with them, but can tolerate that risk has been truly a big advantage for, for Republic and quite frankly for AngelList when I was their general counsel as well. Uh, but there's also that legal training that's a little bit methodical. Um, and and uh, I think the discipline of not worrying about working 18 hours a day because you're so used to it going through law school and working in a law firm i think it's also another advantage for for those with with that background training and entrepreneurships as you know is exceedingly difficult it requires everything you've got so so having that that preparation certainly helps yeah, it's very interesting perspective. Um, you know, I myself started out of college with a couple of years in investment banking. And I think, you know, similarly to what you said, you do get that training in having a certain work ethic that is, you know, easy, easier to maintain when you kind of begin your career that way. Uh, but what I can't really sympathize with as much is, is having that legal expertise. And I can imagine, you know, I almost wish that I did have it because I'm always thinking, you know, even outside of business, just in life, I'm always thinking like, I wish I had just like a personal lawyer who I could trade some like equity in, in myself basically for just cause you know, legal fees run up like really high. Uh, <laughs> just a, a lawyer who I could kind of like ask things because I just don't really, you know, understand. I just don't have the fundamental understanding, really diligence things myself in, in that capacity. Jay, you don't you don't need to be a lawyer as long as you have a, a friend uh, who is pragmatic and with a legal background. I'm happy to be your pro bono a legal friend. <laughs> All right, be be careful. I might take you up on that, but um, I do I do appreciate the sentiment and it's a super interesting uh, perspective. Uh, I, I want to spend the majority of the conversation today talking about Republic, but before we get there, uh, you also mentioned you know having spending some time at AngelList. Uh, I believe you were also fundamental in starting. Uh, coin list. And now Republic is a part of this, uh, what I understand is like a family of, of startup related companies, which also includes product hunt. Can you tell us a little bit about like your experience at AngelList, some of your biggest takeaways from, from that overall experience and, and coin list as well, if it's relevant and, and what that family sort of, you know, what, what's the point of that family today uh, where these yeah. companies are all interrelated? Yes, yeah, certainly. Uh, you mentioned Naval earlier, and I think in life, uh, luck uh, has a lot to do with one's career, and meeting Naval was definitely that moment that just a stroke of luck uh, that that uh, opened up my uh, my path in, in tech and venture. Uh, and uh, indeed, uh, this ecosystem of companies, uh, AngelList, Product Hunt, Coinless Republic, uh, independent companies with its own destiny, uh, but but they are uh, affiliated in in many ways. So I joined AngelList when they first 
move from straight up just an informational platform, sharing information on fundraising to the world to becoming an investment platform with the syndication product. So the moment that you introduce investment products becomes heavily regulated. Uh, I think I was the first non-engineer hire and certainly the first uh, legal and the first general counsel at AngelList. And there wasn't product hunt uh, as part of the ecosystem at the time. And this was late 2013, early 2014. So as AngelList continued to grow and it really does or did and still does, deliver the mission of democratizing access to capital to the top startups in the valley, meaning allowing accredited investors, people who had money but didn't have access, to invest in early stage startups. Uh, and as they grew that ecosystem, uh, I think AngelList saw that, hey, you can go a little bit earlier with product hunts, right, which is just you know, hunting new products. And maybe Republic is where a new product that then becomes a company can fundraise some capital. And then after that, they can go and raise on Republic a more meaningful round. So I think uh, AngelList's vision in looking at product hunt and Republic at the time was filling out or completing the cycle of maturation of a startup from product ideation to setting up a company and get that first friend and family capital. And if you don't have wealthy friends and family, you go to Republic. And then after that, you become credible enough to get VC backing and AngelList syndication would come in. Well, uh, that's the initial plan, but I'm sure that with time, each of these companies uh, also grew and expand beyond its original um, you know, plan plan and have its own destiny, which is what Republic is today. We do a lot more than just early stage startup investing. We have real estate, we have crypto token offering, and we do late stage deals, you know, as late stage as like Robinhood and SpaceX. We call ourselves from seed to SPAC or, or seed to pre-IPO. Coinless is a very interesting um, uh, story. Uh, in that uh, the reason why I was a co-founder and the first uh, interim CEO to run CoinList for a very short period of time was due to the legal complexity of getting a business model like that up and running and, and mapping out a compliance framework. So because Navarre and Israelist uh, knew that I have that background, uh, so they called me to lend my support and, and lay that very initial framework. Where CoinList is today is a far larger and more established and successful um, you know, iteration or exhibition of what we had at the beginning. And I don't you know, purport to take any credit for their success today, uh, but that uh, legal, the heavy legal components in everything that we do when it comes to investment, whether it's token offering, or traditional equity offering was the reason why I ended up getting so involved with, you know, all of the AngelList affiliated companies, um, you know, since 2014 or so. So you don't need to give yourself any any credit for for Coinless, but I'll give you some credit. It sounds like you know anyone who was interim CEO at the beginning obviously plays plays some you know some level of a critical role in uh, the development of what it's become. And even if you haven't been, uh, you know, directly involved for quite a while, 
uh, I can kind of outside looking in assume that that you're a large reason that it was able to grow into what it is today. Um, I, I want to talk about Republic now directly. You kind of hinted at um, you know how it builds upon Angelus original um, you know purpose, which I think is, is still true today to basically um, democratize access to investments. If I'm getting that right, um, I know you have specific terminology, but that's kind of how I think about it. Um, can we just lay out for, for those who aren't as familiar, you know, I, I've obviously spent some time familiarizing myself, but um, what is Republic and why is this something that the world needs? Yeah, so Republic today, uh, which has grown since 2016, but today we're a multi-asset investment platform where anyone anywhere around the world can invest in private deals across different verticals, from startups to real estate, from crypto to video game financing. And we will be adding more things like music financing, movie financing down the road. The private investing is literally the world's second oldest profession and the second oldest pastime. The first one also starts with a P, but that's how people truly generate and aggregate wealth. And up until now, due to both a very archaic infrastructure, as well as outdated regulatory framework, non-accredited people could not invest. I'll just give you an example. The American dream of owning a house, like everyone growing up in America has that beaten into you. Even if you didn't grow into American, you watch movies, you know that the dream of owning a house. Realistically, how many young Americans nowadays can dream of buying a home? I mean, just look at housing prices and look at the economy currently. So if you hear this narrative and you cannot participate, imagine that if you save $1,000 and now you can invest in a residential home in San Francisco, which you know the real estate market is not doing well. And if you invest now, you're probably going to make something down the road. You're never going to lose it all, unlike startup investing, and you're not going to make 100x, but you're going to you know, realize some gain. Just being able to do that, how much that would do to one's financial sophistication as a college student, at a struggling young teacher, and the ability to invest and aggregate wealth in that fashion has both social, educational, and financial value. I genuinely believe that financial inclusion, particularly in the private market, is indeed the solution to the social inequities uh, that, that we see. Uh, and that's what we're focusing on. And that's why I think it's something that is worth doing several lifetimes over rather than just uh, in, in a decade or two. Yeah, I tend to agree with you there. Um, uh, you know, as someone who's uh, not an accredited investor myself, but had the opportunity to, uh, you know, I got to invest in real estate with a buddy of mine. Um, was fortunate to to find something that that worked, and it's been super educational. But there's no reason you should have to, um, you know, fully invest in in a property to be able to learn the ins and outs of real estate, which can be super helpful down the road. Whether it's just buying your own house for for your family, or whether you do want to pursue, you know, more of a strategy, um, investing in real estate. Uh, and, and you mentioned like Robinhood was one of the companies that's raised through you guys, uh, SpaceX, another incredible one, uh, Carta as well, which I think is operating on a, you know, pursuing a similar theme. They might be coming from a different angle, but I think uh, ultimately I view them as, as democratizing access to investments uh, as well. 
Um, I want to talk about like, so, so Robin Hood, uh, you know, has gone kind of uh, viral to some extent over the last year or so uh, people investing in stocks like Tesla uh, and they might not necessarily know what they're doing. You know, some people have some, some pushback on Robin Hood for making it a little bit too easy for people to invest while being relatively uninformed. Um, you guys are, are enabling people, you know, and, and similarly to Robinhood, I'd say you guys are enabling people to invest uh, small amounts of money in, uh, you know, products or, or startups, whether it's, you know, startups or real estate or, or crypto or, or later stage companies like SpaceX, you're enabling people to put like $20, $20 in these types of assets or $100 or whatever it might be. So it's similar like in that way. Uh, and it's more consumer friendly, just like Robinhood. But what's different, I think, is that you guys take like a really um, diligent and, uh, you know, rigorous approach to what investments you allow on your platform. Um, and I understand you only accept like one or 2% of all the companies that uh, aim to, to raise money on your platform. What was the thinking around, you know, being so, uh, having such a high threshold for, for the companies that you accept? And how do you guys go about diligencing some of these opportunities? That's a great example, Jake, because we often in conversation describe ourselves as like Robin Hood for private investing, because uh, that's exactly what, what we're aiming to build. Uh, but um, the reason why the curation lens uh, for Republic is so high, meaning so few companies get accepted, it's due to the fact that early stage investing is very high risk, right? Like most, the majority of early stage companies do not, you know, manage to survive the first year. And I think something like 80% do not manage to survive like the first three or four years. So unlike the public corporations that, that, uh, that Robinhood onboards on their platform, the companies that, that Republic feature private investing is riskier indeed, because the risk of the company not working out and resulting in a total loss is high. But the risk of upside return, meaning 10x, 100x, is always is also there. So it's high risk, high return. However, the issues that you see on Robinhood with like people trading on, you know, with margin that they really shouldn't be because they don't know enough. We don't have that issues because the nature of private investing and the illiquid nature of it inherently reduces the ability from active trading or ill-informed, um, you know, decisions on, on borrowing money so that you can, you know, short, you know, a position or longer position that doesn't really exist in the world of private investing. Uh, but, but at the end of the day, how to educate investors to make sure that they understand the risk profile, but at the same time, presenting investment opportunities that excite them and that a few years out, their expectations are met. That's our goal, meeting our customers' expectations by feature high risk, but exciting and compelling investment opportunities in private markets. Yeah, that's a, that's a really interesting answer. Uh, it makes a lot of sense. I think I, I get, you know, and hopefully people listening, they understand uh, the value proposition of the business. Uh, they understand why this is, you know, so interesting to, uh, investors who want to, you know, allocate a portion of their portfolio that they might not be accredited and they want to still be able to invest in early stage startups. 
or crypto projects or um, even real estate and even video games, which we can touch on later a little bit. Um, but why would like, so for a company like SpaceX, uh, you know, I also understand, I guess I'm flipping to the company side. I also understand why an early stage venture would want to raise through a public. Maybe that's just the best option for them to get capital. But a company like SpaceX, you know, has no trouble as far as I'm aware, raising capital. Um, you know, there's, they haven't gone public, uh, but there's, it's a, a very, uh, promising company, which a lot of people I think would, would be happy to invest in more of the, uh, you know, accredited investor universe. Why does a company like SpaceX want to, you know, offer their, some of their, uh, equity on, on Republic? You know, the, uh, uh, not just SpaceX, let's use a very concrete example of Airbnb. In 2018, Airbnb asked the SEC to give out equity to the home lister on their platforms, right? They're about to go IPO. And the notion that when they go IPO, there's going to be a few thousand uh, employees and former employees and a couple hundred investors that get you know, obviously very, very wealthy, but the entire Airbnb community, including the tens of thousands of customers, those who list their homes in the early years, they contributed so much to the platform, get nothing out of it. So imagine the interest for even late stage companies to provide equity, skin in the game, just a little bit is both incentivizing the existing customer to list more and a general notion of fairness. So the SpaceX deal that we did was a secondary deal. So it wasn't SpaceX, you know, uh, raising from Republic retail investors, but and SpaceX is a B2B business. They don't have retail investors. That doesn't mean that I don't think that B2B companies or that Elon one day doesn't think that, hey, we won a bunch of people to be able to participate early. That means tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands to participate early so that when Space Act goes public, a much larger community also rise with that, that success. So I think that notion of including your community, whether your customer base or just the public at large out of a notion of you know, a financial equity is something that you're gonna see uh, founders of successful companies um, you know, over time embracing and that's undoubtedly is gonna be a trend. Yeah, it's interesting. You mentioned Elon Musk might want to include some retail investors. I saw a tweet that you actually surfaced where he was talking about how, you know, Starlink and how he might want to, uh, you know, enable a, a large population of retail investors to get in there. Uh, and he said, hold me to it. So I'm holding him to it a little bit. But um, was that think, a recent tweet, Jake? I did not see that. <laughs> uh, yeah, I saw, I'll, I'll send it to you after the show. But it was, uh, I think I did a decent job of, of summarizing it. It was basically like, people wanting to invest in Starlink. And he responded to someone saying like, uh, you know, I'm hoping to get retail investors involved on this. Um, and Jake, if I may share just a very quick like uh, stat that may be very obvious to, you know, sophisticated uh, industry leaders like you, but maybe new to a lot of, um, you know, retail investors, 10, 20 years ago, a company would go public at like $200 million in valuation, sometimes half a billion. Right now, the Airbnb, Uber, Palantir, they're all going public at like $50 billion valuations. 
What does that mean? That means that much of the growth and the, the, the wealth to be captured was captured when a company is a private organization. By the time a company goes public, the rest of the world, retail investors, come in to basically, you know, at, at a very, very, very mature stage and therefore really can no longer participate in the early success. So as companies take longer to go public, it becomes even more compelling that more people can participate early, privately, rather than just waiting for an IPO in order to get in. I think that makes economic sense and it really is only thing that is fair socially uh, as well as, as in terms of community engagement. Yeah, I totally agree with you. I think that, um, you know, I've, I've done some thinking on this and I basically come to the perspective that the distinction of, of accredited investors, in my opinion, you know, it's, it's presented as protecting the public from uh, doing, you know, making foolish investments, but really, you know, to a point, you made earlier, uh, and maybe you didn't say this directly, but but my perspective is that it creates an, an unequal playing field where uh, you know not only you know the rich get richer anyway, just due to compound interest and everything like that, but uh, when you actually open asset classes to them that are just fundamentally not available to the public, such as startups and such as like a company like Airbnb. Um, which can raise from you know angel investors and venture investors and, and private equity or whatever it might be, all the way up until they're a five or, or ten billion dollar company or whatever it is, and then only at that point do they go public. It's you know to your point the the whole growth curve, um, it, it's not available to the public until the point at which obviously this is a successful company. The question is only will it continue to be like an Airbnb level success or will it be like the next Amazon? And then obviously, you know, there's opportunities in the public markets as well. But I think, you know, to your point, it, it is a shame from my perspective that people can't participate uh, in those early higher risk, higher reward investments. And, you know, people can go to a casino and bet it all on blackjack. Uh, and now, you know, they can go and do sports gambling as well. So it's like, from my perspective, what's the difference? Um, in fact, what, $100 billion uh, spent or lost in Vegas every single year and $80 billion spent buying lottery ticket uh, every year by Americans. The vast, vast majority of that is from non-accredited uh, folks. Yeah, so it's, it's a bit unfortunate, but I am hopeful through um, you know, platforms like yours that we're heading towards a future where more people can invest in more assets across you know, all sorts of different classes uh, and just screen really exciting opportunities and follow their interests. You know, some people are, are more interested in startups than they are uh, real estate and some people uh, vice versa. I do want to touch on uh, while we're on the subject, there, there was a recent, uh, which I'm sure you're, you're a heck of a lot more familiar with than me, uh, a recent change to the accredited investor uh, definition and rules as, as set forward by the SEC. Um, and I was excited about, by that because uh, you know, to get into banking, I had to take a couple of, of series exams, uh, not either of the ones that qualified me uh, by this new regulation to be a, an accredited investor, but the opportunity to be able to take a test before you have the worth or income that would define you as, as an accredited investor. Um, you know, to me, that's, that's logical. And I was really excited to see that. Would love to, to hear your thoughts on, on that recent change. 
You, you know, I, uh, I'm going to uh, pat ourselves on the back a little bit in that uh, chairman, the SEC chairman's statement announcing that change uh, has a shout out to, to Republic. Uh, we uh, and, and my colleagues uh, in the legal department have been very active in, uh, in working with the SEC to, to reform various dated rules and regulations. Uh, and uh, uh, last week, there was another change uh, in, in the, the private um, capital market rules and regulation framework that it would be making it far easier for companies to raise from retail. Uh, and in the case of the accredited investor definition, uh, Jack, it's long overdue. We're the only company, or we were the only uh, country in the developed world that doesn't have the sophistication component to this definition, meaning uh, since the Great Depression, we define accredited as meeting a certain wealth or income threshold, just loosely defined a millionaire. Well, if you're a very, you know, new, uh, you know, Harvard MBA grad with debt and definitely not a millionaire, but you're super sophisticated and spending two, three years at Goldman, you definitely are more sophisticated and more aware of risk profile than my, you know, 85 year old grandma who's been saving her whole life uh, and now is an accredited investor, but really doesn't know anything about tech or, or startups, right? So that sophistication definition is what was recently added to the accredited investor definition in other words it's going to open up um, private investing or an, a realm of private investing to young professionals who have financial experiences but may not have that wealth and income net worth so not only that I think it's just a natural and the right thing to do uh, I think that it's going to contribute meaningfully to the pool of capital that's going to be able to uh, get deployed into startups from people who also can be of help because they're the customer, they're the future advisors of these startups. So I think it's, uh, it's good for, for everyone involved. So I, I think we've covered to, you know, to a high degree, the importance of, of democratizing access to these investments to non-accredited investors. Uh, I want to take that one step further and talk about, you know, you mentioned Republic. It, it's in uh, a platform that's available uh, to an international population. What's the importance and benefit of expanding uh, opportunities for investment, uh, you know, outside of the states to, to make it so that people around the world, especially now that, you know, we have Twitter and, you know, the internet in general and various ways for people, you know, especially English speaking people all over the world to have as much of an idea of, of what they're doing, investing in uh, American assets. Uh, what's the importance of expanding that ability, you know, worldwide? If I may, Jake, uh, have a bit of a philosophical observation in in uh, in answering this question of yours. So. Um, I think everyone nowadays can agree that it's the economy and innovations that define our future and, and the wealth and the prosperity and the health of, of human civilization, certainly in the past and definitely in the future as well. So how does or how do ideas become products and have a chance of becoming a company like Uber that then produce hundreds of thousands of jobs around the world is by getting uh, financed uh, capital flowing into it. So it's that bridge between 
finance between capital resources and ideas that drives innovation. So today, and I think the purview of Angel is in 2012, is that they primarily just funding amazing ideas coming out of Silicon Valley. But I think we all can agree that people anywhere, everywhere from Vietnam to Alaska, from Alabama to Nigeria, all have very good ideas. It's just that very few people are as fortunate as Americans and very few Americans as fortunate as those who can make their way to Silicon Valley. So if you open up the capital sources through a platform like Republic, first, just American residents. But if you imagine that if everyone around the world can invest as little as 10 or $5, it sounds small per person, but if you aggregate a million of them, $5 each, that's $5 million. That's enough capital to finance probably 50 new companies or maybe even 500 new companies in a place like Ecuador or Vietnam where people are educated with tons of good ideas and they don't need a lot of capital to launch. So the notion of expanding this model of financing, of innovation financing, the focus is on how do you finance more good ideas globally? And in order to do that, you have to encourage people everywhere, just like recycling, that it doesn't matter at what age and how much money you have, what you do, that deploying small dollar amount to finance the next, uh, the, the, the new innovations that you believe will change how we all operate and live and work. Um, that I think is, is the, what we aim to build, that is bridging uh, or, and growing that awareness both among uh, innovators as well as everyday folks um, who who has an interest in 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 seeing a more prosperous future for us all. I, I love the vision and the philosophical answer is certainly much appreciated as always on, on this show. Um, how do you view crypto as helping contribute towards that vision? I know you guys uh, recently or relatively recently launched your own token. Um, would love to just hear your your perspective there. Uh, that's a great question, and that vision is not possible without distributed ledger technology. I'll give you just one very concrete example. Even from day one in 2016, we allowed uh, people to invest as little as $20 on the Republic platform. Now, that's all fine and good for an investor from Florida or Texas or Alaska using her credit card or through ACH. Now, because the fee would be, you know, 50 cents, even less uh, out of the $20 investment. It's not possible for an investor from Singapore or Vietnam or Peru to invest $100 on Republic because the current banking fees would be so high that they would charge something like $30 to facilitate a single ACH wire from Peru or Vietnam to a bank account in the US that we house for the company. Obviously, it makes no sense to pay $30 in fee and make $100 investment, right? It gotta be like in thousands of dollars in order to, for that fee to be worthwhile. And when it's thousands of dollars, it's out of reach for people in Peru and Vietnam. So the notion of enabling people globally cross border to invest small amount at scale is only possible through blockchain technology currently and 
and how it's being evolved. That's just one example, Jake. When it comes to the ability to break down an asset like a house or a piece of art, now we can break it down to a billion pieces so that people can buy one billionth of a Mona Lisa or a fancy hotel in, in Beverly Hills and still can afford it. So that notion of global private investing, retail, at scale and small amount cannot be done without blockchain technology. And we, as far as we know, and I know, the only traditional investment platform that has successfully integrated um, and embraced a blockchain in, into our business model, and we obviously will only continue to do so, is a technology that I think will be the underlying bedrock of every single financial product and financial services companies in the world by the end of the decade. Yeah, I think it's great. You guys are, you know, not only talking about this stuff, but you're setting the example um, through the token. And you mentioned like Airbnb and Uber earlier, and maybe this is slightly different, but, you know, I've spent some time thinking about how, uh, you know, the Uber drivers, they, they may have, Uber may have asked if they could issue equity, it wasn't really possible, they couldn't end up doing it. And in the end, especially if we move to like autonomous driving, the Uber drivers are going to get kind of, you know, the short end of the stick on the time that they've spent contributing to growing that, that business, um, you know, through their work and, and through their, you know, talking positively about it and everything like that. And I think one of the things, and Airbnb is, is similar, although um, I, I think they may have a better chance at incorporating the hosts in, in some way, uh, whether it's through crypto or, or I don't know exactly how. Um, but how do you think about, you know, crypto as enabling and is this a part of your thinking with the Republic token um, and, you know, enabling people who contribute to any business really that benefits from network effects um, to, to enable those people to actually realize, um, you know, money from, from, you know, being incentivized with a, with a piece of the business, whether it's equity or profit sharing, whatever it might be. Yes, I, I just think that uh, looking at social trend, and if you look at uh, millennials and beyond that Gen Z, the, the level of engagement that uh, young people want to have with everything around them is definitely vastly more and will, on, will only be more so over time. So out of that, I think that uh, the notion of them being an early customer or even a not so early customer in a company, they're going to want to have to see something back. So, you know, airline mileage points was in some ways an early version of crypto, right? You go to on United Airlines, the more you fly, the more you get points, but you can only trade them in for credit. I mean, if United Airlines mileage points were to actually pay out dividends, that is a token of, or, or a, uh, a token-like incentivization model. And if you somehow have a market that people can trade and buy these mileage points, then that's exactly what a, a digital securities would be. So what we're doing in the concept of digital securities and tokenizations, and particularly when it comes to sharing a small amount of revenue or profit share at scale to your customer base, so that you can grow and incentivize uh, the customer base even more. That is not like out of thin air or new. It's just a, an evolution of customer engagement from the days of mileage points now into with technology 
into a new form that can provide actual economic interest in terms of things of value and also the tradability and the liquidity of that. So those these elements are new and I think it's going to make the incentivization model even that much more powerful. So we're obviously do have done the very first um, profit sharing digital token in the US that's available even to non-accredited customers. We definitely will not be the last. And uh, I think we hope to, to innovate in this space and set out a framework so that other enterprises can then use that framework uh, and more or less the same legal compliance infrastructure and do the same so that they, uh, they, they can bring more value to the customer base and grow even faster. We certainly have with our own model. It's a great perspective. Um, Republic has been very acquisitive in the last, uh, you know, I, I don't know how long, but recently you made an, an uh, acquisition of NextSeed, uh, enabling like a local business investing uh, product before that. Uh, compound to enable the the real estate investing and also fig uh, to invest in video games. What has drove what you know what drove you guys to um, take an acquisition strategy versus building some of these things in house? And if you could just kind of shed some light on uh, you know one or, or more of these acquisitions and uh, why you're excited to bring them on board and, and you know enable uh, the product on the platform. Yes, for, for a company as we grow and expand and we view ourselves as a platform that aggregates different types of deals in different markets. So having the knowledge base, the domain expertise in each new industry that we enter into is definitely the number one problem to solve, right? Unless you have that expertise, you can't really onboard and curate deals. So either you can acquire that expertise by hiring team members and build that up organically, or if you find like-minded entrepreneurs out there with that expertise who see Republic as two plus two equals eight rather than equals four, that's when the conversation of an acquisition becomes natural. And I think that's the approach that we had with fake game development financing, which we brought on in, in, uh, in April, uh, Compound, which became Republic Real Estate as of June, and Next Seat, which is Main Street, um, you know, small businesses that are primarily non-tech on a debt uh, model, revenue sharing or debt financing model. Uh, we also don't have the domain expertise there. Uh, and, and the team, uh, particularly uh, the CEO and founder of Nexit, Young Ro, whom I very much admire and also a former attorney turned uh, entrepreneur. And he's been uh, the CEO of, of Nexit for the past six years. Uh, and he's joining Republic as our COO. Uh, so it's very much bringing on uh, like-minded talents, and in some cases, an acquisition makes more sense than building that up organically, which is more time-consuming uh, and and obviously higher risk. That makes sense. And you guys have been growing super quickly, not just in terms of these different offerings that you're enabling through through acquisitions, but also uh, in the sheer amount that's been invested through the platform. I understand. Um, I think it was $200 million or so that's been invested uh, through Republic thus far. And, and, you know, it's a relatively young company still, but even over the, the four or five years that it's, it's been around, 
Um, I understand that like 90%, just by looking at the chart on the website, it looks like about 90% of that capital has been within like the last couple of years and you guys are just skyrocketing in terms of growth. Uh, so it's super cool to see. One of the other features that I saw on the website was um, this autopilot offering where I'm not sure if it's just within startups or uh, more broadly, but there's this ability to um, basically put a certain amount of money in, it looks like, and then set your portfolio on autopilot where um, it's kind of indexed across different offerings that, that Republic has uh, and you don't really have to make any of the decisions for yourself. Uh, I think, you know, with, with early stage venture in particular, indexing is, is a super important strategy. It's very hard, like you said earlier, uh, you know, a large percentage of these uh, companies fail, you know, no matter how good their plan might sound. Um, could you talk a little bit about the autopilot program and what was the thinking there as well? Yeah, I uh, uh, thank you, uh, Jake, for highlighting a product that was built uh, so that we could educate or encourage investors to follow a risk profile that we think is advisable. So um, let me put it another way. It's a product that meant to encourage people to invest in a lot of deals. If they have a thousand, uh, if, have, if, if they have a thousand dollars to invest, they should be putting it into 20 different deals on Republic rather than randomly picking one deal and thinking that this is going to be it. Early, investing or private investing general, the, the rule is diversification, diversification, diversification. Even Sequoia or Andreessen Horowitz, the best VCs out of their portfolio, maybe two out of 10 yield substantial return and probably easily half yield absolutely nothing. So the notion of an autopilot is that it makes it simple for an investor on Republic to check a few boxes of the criteria that they want to see in a deal and then then programmatically, automatically, whenever a deal meets those criteria, an investment is made out of a out of you know certain metric that the investor would provide. It may be fifty dollars every single time in a female founder backed by a top tier VC. It can be like that specific, or it can be in every single real estate deal, but got to be residential and only in Miami. Whatever it may be that fits their profile, we just want to encourage people to do so in uh, in a diversified manner. That's first and foremost, and the second one is that we're gonna integrate that product with retirement fund uh, account IRA specifically so that people can do so perhaps allocate one or two or three percent of their IRA assets and invest programmatically broadly into early stage private deals I think that's pre-tax tax-free and that's just a sensible way compared to a hundred percent into some random index of like public companies I think that's a little dated and I think millennials uh, will want to to be much more involved early on in in uh, private market investments yeah I think that that retirement product sounds like a, a no-brainer it sounds really cool um, I, I know we're coming up on time, so I want to wrap it up uh, and give you the last word. But uh, I think, you know, Republic to me, you guys, I know have a tagline crazy today, obvious tomorrow. To me, it seems like Republic is pretty obvious already. Um, and, and I can hear your passion in the way you talk about the company and your vision, uh, democratizing access to investing. Uh, it's just, it's, it's exciting to watch uh, and look forward to seeing what you do in the future. Um, you know, with that said, would love to give you the opportunity to, uh, you know, if you have anything that we didn't get to cover, 
or uh, just sending people to, to where they can learn more about Republic and learn more about you? Thank you so much, Jake. I mean, it's just been like an honor. It's such a pleasure. Uh, and I'm really grateful that we get to share the perspectives. I think on, on an end note, uh, I just want to share another tidbit, which is uh, if you people look at the year 2030, uh, something like between 50 to 75 percent of Fortune 500 companies in 10 years, uh, you know, the, the biggest companies, they have not existed yet today uh, in someone's head or someone's garage. So if you think that these companies will literally define humanity, society, wouldn't you want to have a voice in picking the innovations, the ideas that you think may one day be that next Fortune 500 companies? So I think it's both a, it's beyond just, just um, uh, wealth uh, generation. That's important, but it's also being uh, a, a, a thing that I think everyone should do to have a voice in, in deciding, uh, you know, these things that are going to control how we work and live and, uh, and interact with each other. So republic.co uh, is the website, not .com, .co. Uh, and we hope that, that everyone should check it out and you see something or if uh, there's a founder story that you find compelling, may it be $5 or $500. At, at the very least, it's a good learning experience. And, you know, who knows, hopefully it can be the next Uber or Airbnb.